it's time for a Flashback Friday episode. On Monday, you heard a delightful and insightful interview from CEO of Starbase Indy, Lisa Meese, who encouraged you to go out into the world and make it so. Well, this week's Flashback Friday is a Kate's Take episode that was a live event at Starbase Indy in 2017. Covering Star Trek The Search for Spock, this episode digs into the five basic needs, friendship, and Ponfar. Oh yeah, we go there. Originally aired December 21st, 2017, this was actually the final Kate's Take episode ever released. Enjoy our Flashback Friday Kate's Take Star Trek The Search for Spock. Welcome to Kate's Take from galsguide.org. Each week I talk about a movie that has shaped my life and I'll teach you how to dissect a movie and find the life lessons hidden within. Hello and welcome to a live recording of Kate's Take Podcast. This is our third year recording in front of a live audience at the fantastic Starbase Indie. Today we are breaking down the universal messages in Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. With me, as always, on these glorious specials is my husband, Joshua Leach. Yes. So Josh, say hello to the good people. Hello and thanks for showing up. And (laughs) we are by no means... Star Trek experts, so we may rely on you guys for a few things here and there. So if you guys have some expertise that we don't, feel free to uh, let us know when we're wrong. But I think we're going to have a good show. Yeah, and he's usually my go-to Star Trek expert. I am a Star Wars girl. We are a uh, bi-universe galaxy marriage. (laughs) So it helps. Uh, So I am happy to report at this point, this is the seventh Kate's take that we have done on the Star Trek series, which is actually pretty cool. Uh, It is now tied for our coverage of Star Wars. So, you know, got to keep them even, right? (laughs) So we did one on the fan film guidelines. Uh, We did uh, three episodes covering the various TV shows of of, uh, Star Trek. We picked like one episode from each of the incarnations and broke that down. Um, And then, of course, we have done now the third movie in this glorious series. Uh, So normally these kind of end up being a refresher or going like plot point by plot point through the movie. Um, But I kind of figured I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all have seen this movie. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. So in this one, we're actually kind of going to jump around the movie and talk more about like the messages that are in it. Just kind of like dig into it. Uh, So the themes that we're going to talk about are the needs of the many. We're going to talk about the Katra or the living spirit. We're going to talk about friendship, the five basic human needs, And we're going to talk about Ponfar. Yeah, we're going there. We got to talk about the Ponfar that is in this movie, right? (laughs) So a quick refresher of the movie. Uh, The recap of Star Trek 3, it starts with a recap of Star Trek (laughs) 2, right? So it's actually kind of interesting in retrospect because doesn't it look like a little blue box instead of a bigger, blacker box, right? Exactly. Uh, It kind of feels like you're watching Wrath of Khan on a television. So especially if you're seeing it in the theater, it feels like 
I'm paying theater prices to watch this TV size. It's a little bit odd. Now, I did some research. Well, in 1983, uh, the year that this movie, Star Trek III, that we're talking about was released to theaters, uh, Paramount was experimenting with the sell-through video market. Now, the rental market was very strong. People would go and you know rent a movie for a night or two for a couple of bucks. Well, those rental houses, they paid $100 per copy of those, and then you paid a couple of bucks. They hope to get a return on their investment. Paramount thought, why not try something with Rathacon? Why not offer it for sale for $40 and see if anybody bought it? Well, here's the thing. People bought it. <laughs> so I actually kind of wonder, uh, because this experiment worked with the idea of home video, of owning the video, not just renting it from the rental store and seeing it in the theater, that uh, maybe that little blue box at the beginning of this movie was to get you used to the idea of re-watching Star Trek in your own home. Possible. You never know. The little small screens. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, no, I, I think definitely they were prepping a market because I know when these movies came out, I always saw them on TV. They would replay them on different TV channels. And right. We were not early adopters of the VCR. We didn't have one for ages in my house. My aunt had to buy us one because she felt sorry for us. She went, you're the only people I know that don't own a VCR, and so she bought us one. <laughs> yeah, and once we got one, I don't remember, recall buying an actual tape for ages. You it just used it just to rent. Renting. Yeah, it was always for rentals. We did, we were early adopters on the Laserdisc players. Of so course you are. We were, uh, we were definitely smart to get in early on the Laserdiscs. Smart. Can I use finger quotes <laughs> in a podcast? Smart. And then we got buried and all the Laserdiscs came to my hey, house. <laughs> still have those, still have those Laserdiscs. <laughs> yeah, we do. Still have the player too, so... And there's been a couple times now when... You can't find it anywhere else, and we whip out the Laserdisc. We want to watch a movie. thing every 20 we minutes. Don't have the, <laughs> we don't have the DVD version of it, so right. we, or the Blu-ray, so we pull out the old Laserdisc. And, yeah. And you're very happy, and I'm dying inside. Yes! <laughs> you know, if you don't mind getting up and flipping a disc, <laughs> it, it works wonderfully. Just saying. <laughs> So, okay, the actual recap of Star Trek Three is that Kirk is sad that Spock is dead. <laughs> uh, Spock's body was sent to the Genesis planet, uh, where, there was, where the planet was recently brought to life um, by a growth hormone. Let's just call it a GMO, shall we? <laughs> so the hope was that the Genesis device um, that Kirk's ex-gal and son worked on would maybe bring Spock back to life. Um, but we all know it does. So, you know, <laughs> we won't kid ourselves there. But that was the hope. Now, surprise, the Klingons arrive and they want this Genesis power because if it can create life, then it can destroy life, right? So the Klingons are like, oh, must have this. Um, so it seems simple enough. Um, but the Klingons are many times, uh, they're morons because they killed the only person on the Genesis planet who had knowledge of this device in an eeny, meeny, miny, mo type fashion. So geniuses, absolutely. So, and what would you, yeah, I know, right? And so what would you say? <laughs> Everyone repeat after me. Klingon bastards. Klingon you bastards. killed my son. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, it was a yeah. sacrifice play. It was, and and that kind of takes after his dad in that you know he's willing to sacrifice right. himself for others to some extent, but 
He's also like, you're not getting this information. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, and, he, and you wonder, because Carol Marcus obviously isn't in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got Perk's son, and then you have um, Savick, who yeah. you wonder Who's how much it. you wonder how much of it she knows. And so obviously the Klingons didn't think through the whole. But then also they were under the impression that they could just easily just get whatever information they needed from the Enterprise. So right. by killing whoever on the planet was to force their hand into giving the plans that they assumed were on the Enterprise. Right. Little did they know that the Enterprise was basically a flying hunk of junk at that point. Well, you know. Because <laughs> things happened in the Wrath of Khan. It did. And they didn't watch that movie yet. You no, know, they didn't watch that one on the videotape. No, they hadn't no. watched that one yet. No, not so much. Um, so right before Spock's death, he puts his katra, or living spirit, into Bones, and it drives Bones a bit batty for the course of the movie. So the mission becomes to get Spock's body from the Genesis planet, to get Bones, uh, to, sorry, to get the body and Bones uh, with Spock's katra to the Vulcan planet so that they can be put back together again and reunite that mind and body to bring back Spock. <laughs> and I, I like how they I like how they did with Bones how they would have Spock's voice. Mm-hmm. And and so it kind of created this like eerie ghost like thing yep. going on in the background. And I really liked how they did that because it added Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he was in his quarters and then there was the yeah, then when he's at the yeah. scanner console. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it really, it really helped to create this effect that almost like Spock's ghost was there that kind of kept, gave the crew more impetus to, to keep going because they kept right. these, having these emotional reminders that Spock was still there even though his body was elsewhere. It's, uh, in screenwriting, he was always off camera. Yes. <laughs> So you could hear him, but then you're like, wait, but that's Bones. Wait a second. Yes. That, that was a good effect. I know, right? Yeah. Always yeah. off camera. And then, yeah. of course, Leonard Nimoy was literally off camera. Let me just deliver this line from here. <laughs> so a series of obstacles are put in their way throughout the course of the movie. Uh, the arrival of Enterprise at Earth Dock, they are told that the ship is being decommissioned. And they aren't allowed to talk about the Genesis Project because apparently it's about as controversial as climate change, is kind of how I was thinking about it. Um, so, you know, you've got to steal your own ship, right? <laughs> you've got to steal your own ship, then the Klingons are going to break your ship. Uh, and then you have to blow it up with most of them on it. Um, and then you have to steal the Klingon ship just to get to Vulcan, right? Perfect plan. I think it's really clear. It's going to totally work, right? <laughs> so now I did wonder, I feel like the movies, because we're on the third movie, um, and we've got, in two, we have the, the death of Spock, and then in three, we have the destruction of Enterprise. Are they trying to kill everything Trekkies love? Well, they do. <laughs> this, this is one of many times they destroy the Enterprise in the movies. Right. They, they do like to blow things up. Even the Next Generation cast got into the whole let's destroy the Enterprise let's thing. Let's see what happens. <laughs> when they split into the two ships and then had the giant saucer crash land. and So it's right. always a theme in the movie of destroying the Enterprise. I think the captains just, I think they like to get, it's like with the new car. Every three sure. years, <laughs> every three years, people there's certain people out there that like to trade in their old vehicle oh. for a new one. Well, they like to every few years 
destroy the enterprise, so then that forces uh, them to get a new one. Sure. And loss, loss is a big motivator in movies. You know, like you're saying with the new uh, Star Wars and they killed Han Solo. You know, Spoilers. It's, a, it's a good motivator. <laughs> it's a good motivator for people in the characters in the movie to keep going and that it's something new to avenge. Fresh. Yeah, and 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 with Kirk's son to avenge his death, to avenge the the loss of the Enterprise, which you know. You have to ask yourself which which Kirk cares about more, the Enterprise. That's always the question. The Enterprise or David, his own son. You know, it's like. Oh no, that one's easy. Because <laughs> there seemed to be in in there seemed to be less mourning. It was almost like a hierarchy of Spock, the ship, and then his son was at the dead. It was dead last. Which can be a little bit sad. And you said dead last. I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> literally. Aww. Literally dead last. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so let's get into our first uh, big theme or message that is in the movie, and it is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. one. There it is. Yes, of course. Now, this is said quite a few times in the movie. You're almost hit over the head with it a few times. Uh, But what does this line mean to you, either in the context of the movie or in context of a universal message or meaning? Well, I mean, the, the universal message is, is clear, you know. That, it's different to each person, know. but yeah. And they, they have, you know, there's all those uh, moralistic quandaries that, that you get into of, you know, if there's a bus traveling at a group of people, and if you throw a, a you know, if you knock a tree over and, dif- and divert the bus into... The other lane, it kills only one person instead of killing 50. Would you, right. knowing, knowing that you could affect it in that way, would you kill the one person to save the 50? Mm-hmm. There's all those moralistic questions that you get into when you get into college philosophy classes and stuff. So in this one, yeah, so in this one, it's kind of flipping that whole thing on its yeah. head in this movie, where in, the, in two, Spock sacrifices the one himself to save the entire ship, right? Where in this one they're risking not an entire ship's crew, but you know the the, the four or five of them that go on this this adventure to save the one, right. which in this case is Spock. And and that's just one of those things. It you know, as Spock would say, is it is a human fault? Is it logical? It's right. not logical, <laughs> and that's that's where humans screw it up. But it, it's it's important enough for Kirk that he's willing to sacrifice the ship mm-hmm. in order to save Spock. So yeah. there you go. Um, I mean, I see it in the, of course, in the contents of wrath of Khan, um, it's a sacrifice play to save the crew of enterprise. Absolutely. Um, I also see it kind of as a universal message when, uh, Kirk is negotiating with Krug on the Genesis planet, um, because it's becoming, uh, unstable all around them. Uh, and Kirk shouts at him, you fool, look around, the planet is destroying itself. But he says, if we don't help each other, that we'll die here. And I almost felt like that was an echo as well of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, because I do wonder, is it a call for conservation? Is it a, you know, a, a global question that he's necessarily asking. I also put that layer on it because I know that Leonard Nimoy was kind of a conservationist. We see it a little bit with the whales in the next one, right? 
When Kirk, though, when he opens his mouth and he changes it at the end of this movie, uh, where he then rewords it, where the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, um, I mean, I get it. I get that Spock's mind and body needs to be reunited, that Spock is the one with the need here. Also, you could go with a kind of neo-matrix sort of thing. Spock is the one in this analogy. Um, but when Kirk rewords it, it almost is back to Kirk can't deal with death. I mean, every character has a flaw, but Kirk really can't seem to deal with death. So it does feel like it's more Kirk's need than it is for Spock's need. Um, and of course, I've always seen Kirk as a self-serving character who does not like to lose. Now, he does not ever jeopardize his crew, but he doesn't like to lose. Um, so I would say that Kirk would do anything to cheat uh, to win uh, because I feel like he can't deal with Spock's death. And so when he tries to cheat it by sending it to the Genesis planet, that's one way to do it. Um, and then, you know, on Vulcan for a special Kirk wins ceremony is kind of what I call it. <laughs> so I, I feel like that, that phrase, his rewording of the phrase takes it from being noble to being selfish. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, you see, you see Kirk's selfishness in his inability to deal with losing, to deal with death. Yes. Yeah. It starts with in two with the whole his solution to the Kobayashi Maru. Yep. Where he just reprogrammed the computer so he never had to deal with that no win scenario. Right. And so in this in this movie, they pretty much they reprogrammed the the, the movie in allowing Spock to be reborn. And, well, you get to write. You know, so <laughs> exactly. So it's just another way for Kirk to escape having to deal with losing, to deal right. with death. Is but oddly, you would think he would have the opportunity to deal with death through the death of his own son. Not so much. But he <laughs> tends to just kind of skip right past that and gets it all out at once. And well, yeah, that's that's his, where he basically deals with it in revenge by killing all the Klingons except for John Larroquette. Right. Um, so yeah, was that Maltz? Yeah, Maltz. ah, there you go, Maltz. Joy, joy. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's his way of avoiding death and avoiding having yeah. to deal with the tough issues. And it's the same with he, you know. He didn't know he had a son for the longest time because... Right, it was in the last movie. Yeah, and Carol never <laughs> told him about it, but it's like they had a relationship and he seemed to kind of run away from that. Right. So it's, it's a pattern with, with Kirk of avoiding the tough decisions as much as possible. And then yeah. when you do have to make the tough decision, you find a way to cheat it. Of course, exactly. So I will also add this to it as well, though, because I'll go another layer deep with the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It's actually not the need of just one, of just Kirk or just Spock, depending how you look at it. Um, there was many. There was the entire crew of the Enterprise that wanted him back. They were the many. Um, so, and not only beyond that, but the audience needed Spock back, you know what I mean? So we were the needs of the many as well. And Bones even says to Spock's, you know, body before the ceremony, I've missed you, and I don't know if I can stand to lose you again, right? So the needs of the many do, you know, in many ways outweigh the needs of the few. So should we move on to Katra? 
the living spirit? Let's do it. All right. So I do. I love this concept um, of the living spirit and that the Vulcans can pass it on uh, before they die. Um, I also loved the use of the body-mind separation that they use within the movie. So uh, the Dalai Lama talks a lot about body-mind connection um, and how to understand the body and to understand the mind separately, um, but then also in a complex way to look at it as a whole, how one doesn't work without the other, but yet how each is extremely valuable. Um, it's a complex subject when you start talking about body-mind, um, but one simple way to think of it is, you know, healthy body, healthy mind sort of thing. So to have the construct and that connection to a person, um, and I don't want to say human because we are talking about Spock, we are talking about an alien here, um, but we, to have that physical body that we recognize um, just as unique as, you know, as a person. Every person is unique and your body is uniquely yours just as your mind is. So when one is missing, the person doesn't feel whole. So when the mind is missing, we get zombies, right? <laughs> There's still the physical person that you remember, but they, you know, they are missing their minds. Um, so then, and in death, we have the body, but we don't have the mind. We don't have the personality. We don't have the spirit. So the idea of bones being the keeper of Spock's Katra, uh, or his mind in this case, I think is fascinating. And I think that's <laughs> probably the best way to really kind of paraphrase it. So um, here's how I see it in terms of a universal message, something that we can take from the movie and into our lives, um, is that those that pass on you know, from our lives, and it does not matter you know, religious preference uh, or background or lack thereof, your friends and family that leave you, they never leave your mind. You know, they're always with you. They're still in your thoughts. Uh, they're still in your conversations. They're still in your memories. So their living spirit, if you think of it that way, is still within us. They just don't change our voices like they did in the movie. <laughs> what did you think about the Katra part of the movie? Yeah, I, I thought the way they went about it was good. Um, and I, I thought it was nicely planned out how it kind of picked up from one movie to the next and mm -hmm. kept that whole storyline going. Felt like it was moments later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so you could tell that they they had a good plan in place for the bringing back of Spock as far as th their idea of his spirit will, will still be there. We just have to... It, it, where they, in my estimation, things kind of messed it up a little bit was getting the body was because the spot going from being dead to being alive again, there's so many questions that... You have a raises. lot of questions there, yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the photon torpedo crash-landed on the planet, and, but it, it doesn't really explain how Spock went from a dead 50-something guy to a baby to then back to a 50-something-year-old guy. The, right. the science there is very flimsy. And for Star Trek, which... The Genesis effect. Yes, the but... Genesis effect. <laughs> but it, so it, it, it reconstituted him into a baby, but it didn't do anything to the, uh, to the capsule that 
the, to the photon torpedo. The photon torpedo is still it's not in a one living piece. energy, though. The, fo- the the robe that he was in is still in one piece. So right. it's just we- and then with that part's the, always weird. With the <laughs> microbes that were on the outside of the photon torpedo that then evolved into those giant or not giant, but the large creatures on the evolved board. fast. Yeah, the so those just evolved really fast. So right. If his cells evolved really fast, then wouldn't there be, like, thousands of Spocks running around? Oh, you think they would multiply? I think it's supposed to be each each microbe that was on there. Yeah, there would be something different going on there. I don't know if it's a divide and multiply. I don't think it's a rabbit situation. Well, because, well, but there was lots of little microbes, and there's lots of cells that make up your body. Why didn't all his different cells decide to go off and do their own thing? I don't know. You Maybe know, it's they're very, saving that for something else. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's going to be a planet with like 75 Spocks. Maybe. Running the thing. <laughs> but it's just, it's just weird that with, a, with Star Trek, which is such a science-based show, that yeah. Spock coming back to life was just... It, the science there is very fuzzy. Right. And how he's connected to the planet, and the planet's destroying itself, and the planet's going to explode. Mm-hmm. And the way you stop Spock from exploding is just you take him away from the planet. Wouldn't he explode too if he was reconstituted with it the proto matter stuff? But it could and be another level of uh, interconnection, you know, that mind body connection where yeah. it's, you know, planet and Spock connection. Once those two are separated, it, it breaks that interconnection between the two of them. But it leaves way too much room for just making up your own. And that's why it story. gets fun. Should we move on to the pond far? <laughs> oh, we got to talk about the pond far, right? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions. We kind of been talking about it for like a week on and off of the confusingness that is the pond far. Um, all right, so when Spock's body is sent to the Genesis planet and the GMOs get a hold of him, because that's how I like to think of it. Uh, so he's reborn and he's like childlike reborn, like you were talking about. Um, so now I can only, you know, assume in the context of the movie that because plant life and the microbes are growing really fast at a rate, uh, that Spock had to start over too. That's kind of how I observe it. I have no idea. Um, and now you had some, no, we went through those already. The questions that you had of how Spock, no, actually this was another one. You wondered how Spock even ate from age nine. Well, until we <laughs> to see get him, to age nine. Yeah, until he gets up he to eating? the age we see him. Right. When he's an infant unable to move. Right. What did he eat or drink? I mean, obviously that would have, with the accelerated growth, that would have right. only probably been a few hours. But still, his cells would have been going a mile a minute. What did he eat? Or well, Vulcans don't really eat; they just drink. But what? what well, did see, he there's eat? that. Yeah. What did he eat? Their drink the whole time. He my, had to have, his body had yeah. to have consumed something. My answer is always barely anybody ever eats in a movie. It's one of those things where unless it's a prop, they don't close doors, they don't look at explosions, and they barely eat. So, <laughs> yeah, it, you mean there's there's plenty of things. Yeah, you can say can sustained by the the energy of the planet and mm-hmm. things like that. But there's something there. Somehow he had to get nutrients into his body for. 
that entire time. Right. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, even though we're starting on shaking ground, maybe that's what made the pond far so worse. So every seven years, a male adult Vulcan um, experiences the pond far, which is the time of mating. So luckily, the newly cast Savak, <laughs> Savak, uh, is there to explain this to us of how it's going to go this time around, because it's a little bit different from the original series, from Mock Time. They changed it up just a little bit. Um, so on the Genesis planet, we actually see five different ages of Spock. Uh, though when I was kind of watching it, I felt like I was only seeing a few. I felt like I was only seeing like three of them. But there's five of them. There's age 9, 13, 17, 25, and then Leonard Nimoy, or 53, who was 53 at the time. Um, so for these ages, and we're assuming adult life of Ponfar, right? I'm going to say 17, because it's probably the less creepy of all the ages. <laughs> so, 17, um, we have, what is it, Savak or Savak? Savak. Savak, I always say, Savic. I try to put too much emphasis on a wrong syllable in there. Um, but, so she helps him out during the pond fire with a little finger touching. <laughs> so, yeah. Creepy. It, it feels creepy, but, uh, so Nimoy said in his book that that scene was the equivalent to holding hands in public. Okay, that's awesome. It doesn't, didn't really totally play that way to me on screen, but you know, everybody's bringing their own baggage with them when you're watching something. <laughs> and so you get your own interpretation when you watch something. Um, what it did tell me, uh, just kind of in a you know, visual context of what Ponfar is, is wow, that seems to suck. And it uh, seems like, a, like the worst combination ever of a growth spurt and puberty rage, basically. Um, it was way different than American Pie. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, and teenagers, what did you think? Uh, human teenagers complain about puberty. Right, exactly. Know? This then, looks worse. That looked like maddening. <laughs> it really did. Wow. <laughs> so that's why I'm like going, oh, I don't know if just, you know, the equivalent of holding hands in public... I don't know if that would be enough when you're raging that hard. It, just, it seemed like with the whole finger thing that there was more going on there than... Yeah. It reminded me of in Forrest Gump when Forrest, oh, no, Forrest goes Gump. to the girls' college and he's sitting there on the bed with Jenny. We'll, we'll stop it there. <laughs> um, but that's more that's of what, what it reminded me of than, than sure. of anything else. So, I mean... Sure. Everything relates back to Forrest Gump for you. Well, everything. Uh, it's a masterpiece of a movie. Sure it is. Uh, So the last thing we're going to talk about uh, is specifically now with um, the movies is how they tie into the five basic needs. Um, Now, Dr. William Glazer, he actually calls this choice theory. Has anybody heard of choice theory before? Um, I actually learned this in screenwriting. I come from a filmmaking background. So I learned it in screenwriting in the sense of each story needs to focus on one of these five basic needs to invoke an audience, to connect to an audience, to mean something to an audience. Um, And so there are five of them. The five basic needs that are described are survival, belonging, power, freedom, and fun. And in every movie that you see, It'll have one of these elements as the strong overriding theme through it. Now, you've never heard of this either, have you? Mm, Completely, completely blank. All right, so I will break it down of what they are, and it'll become clear why here in a second. I'm going outside the box, and then I'm coming right back to it. 
Uh, but you're going to start to see these in movies. So I'll focus on the five. Uh, survival. It's all living creatures are programmed to survive, right? This is kind of the easier one. We all understand survival mentality. It's the most basic. It's the most self-explanatory. Films like Independence Day. Independence Day is primarily about survival. It's the key theme that is in it. Uh, belonging. Now, belonging is being fulfilled by love, by sharing, and by cooperating with others. Uh, this includes friendships and includes life partners. So this goes from your rom-com romantic comedies, also goes to your Harry Potter movies. Harry Potter movies are very much about belonging and friendship. Uh, the next one is power, and that is fulfilled by achieving and accomplishing and being recognized and respected. So power goes two ways. You can think of it in terms of Mr. Holland's opus is about power because it's about achieving and then being recognized for your achievements. But then it can also swing the other side of the pendulum, and it can be Wall Street, and it can be the Wolf of Wall Street, where it's about power and achievement and greed and money. So that's the different side of that. Uh, freedom is the fulfillment of making choices. So there's the physical act of slavery and imprisonment, uh, like an Amistad, but then there's also the mental uh, lack of choice, which we can kind of see in the Matrix, if you put it that way. So fun. So fun is the last element. That one is fulfilled by laughing and playing, all right? So honestly, for me, this is kind of where Guardians of the Galaxy kind of falls into. Um, it's about fun. There are elements of belonging in Guardians of the Galaxy, but when I kind of look back on the overall, like, what point is it trying to make? It's fun. It's just trying to be fun. Uh, this is also the, the main motif that you see in a lot of comedy movies as well. They're trying to have fun. They're trying to make you laugh. Um, so how does this relate to our exploration of the Star Trek series? Because we have done three of these now. Three of them. And a very interesting pattern actually starts to appear. So Star Trek, the very long motion picture, which is what I call it. I believe that was its full working title, the very long motion picture. Um, that one actually falls on our power scale. Uh, it is specifically about achievement. Uh, so Spock is trying to receive the colonar, right? He's trying to attain pure logic. And so Spock attains his own version of colonar by learning how to mind meld with V'ger and that logic and knowledge are not enough. You also need friendship as part of that as well. Um, and he called for the machine and human to combine. Now, Kirk's drive, his ambition during the film, um, is the newly rebuilt, of course, Enterprise, right? And he wants to be in power. And there is a power play motif with Decker through the whole thing. Uh, and it's about getting respect and it's about getting control. So Kirk gets, of course, control of Enterprise and he outwits his adversaries. Uh, but then there's also a power motif in V'ger. V'ger, there you go. I always want to say Voyager because of spoilers. Uh, with V'ger, because its goal is to find the creator and complete its mission, right? Um, and it completes its mission and it is reunited with the creator, which is us glorious humans. So power is the motif there. Uh, for Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan, the motif is freedom. Now, freedom, remember, is about having choices. So when we have the Kobayashi Maru, it's about a lack of choices that you have that are 
beneficial to the most amount of people, right? Um, so it's choosing two really bad options. You have to choose between two really bad options. And Spock sacrifices himself as the solution to the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, he saves the ship, but at very great cost. Also, you have uh, the freedom motif with Khan. He's stuck on SETI Alpha 5, right? His choices are, are six. Oh, sorry. He's No, it's five, but they think it's six. Oh, Because okay. he yells, this is SETI Alpha 5. <laughs> Got it. But he's very limited on his choices, right? He feels like he is marooned there. So revenge becomes a big theme in the movie. Now, it's important to understand that revenge is also the appearance of lack of choices. Because it always feels like with revenge, you have two choices. Kill the person who wronged you or forgive them. Those are the two. Guess which one Khan chooses? <laughs> or at least attempts to choose, right? Exactly. So, uh, however, what is interesting when you think of it is the, the, the freedom of choice and Khan's revenge that he must, he's choosing revenge. He has to go for revenge and he's trapped in the cycle. His character does die thinking he killed Kirk. So he kind of gets his freedom in a sense. His, you know... That's the one choice that I got to make. Um, so now Star Trek, Search for Spock, the one that we are gloriously talking about. That one is about belonging. Um, it's specifically about friendship. Um, so the whole movie is to get Spock back and to go on with the adventure so the adventure can continue. Um, yes, it may seem like a missed opportunity to go on a you know, wild wind adventure with everybody in the crew. Uh, but if you look at these five basic needs, and if you look at, so far, they have not doubled them up. We seem to like be hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. You need to have one in here about belonging. And the reason why that's important in an overarching series to have one about belonging is because we need to see how the crew belongs to one another, how they need each other, how they cooperate with one, with one another. So the movie really illustrates the importance of the crew dynamic and how much they need each other and how they are stronger together. That way, as an audience, we never want to see them separated. We always want to see them, uh, you know, together and fighting. So that is the five basic needs of Star Trek. What did you think of that? Well, that's fabulous. That is uh, very <laughs> insightful. I, yeah, no, it's... I, so not, not ever having heard of the five basic needs. No, it, it's definitely something to, to look at with... When you next time you're watching a movie of what which what one does this fit into? Is this, is this fitting into? And then it it also makes me excited to do the the rest of the Star Trek movies to figure out what those ones fit right into. exactly. So the next one's about the whales, <laughs> whales, and we have survival and fun left on our list. So for our answer, you'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> Kate's Take is brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. For more information, including links to our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, visit galsguide.org.